if people people can pursue what they feel is success, like a promotion or more money or whatever, but it can be incredibly detrimental to their own personal happiness and their own personal satisfaction. So how do you balance these two things out? Because personally, I think maybe satisfaction is almost more important than this perception of success. Welcome to the Search and Succeed podcast. I'm Rob Glass, Managing Partner of Hunston Partners. We are so fortunate to share many journeys with some exceptional people throughout their careers, people whom are thriving in their area of expertise. And on this podcast, we'll be chatting with them about how they perceive and strive for success within their industry and their life. I hope you enjoy So pleased to have Gillian Moore on the podcast today. Gillian's had a rather impressive career to date and is hugely passionate in and outside of work. Outside work, Gillian is a keen scuba diver, photographer, traveller, and has just completed the London Marathon twice. Her position at Avenard is as the global lead of the digital advisory services business and is the executive sustainability sponsor. Gillian is a strong advocate of a people-first approach, which matters even more when bringing together teams that span multiple geographies and cultures, sitting also as the chair of the board of trustees at London Sport, a not-for-profit organisation focused on getting people in the capital more active. Gillian has a rather active and busy schedule, and we are privileged that she is joining us today on the podcast. Hi, Gillian. Great to be here with you. Hello, and uh, greetings from an unusually sunny Manchester. Well, Manchester is a, a place that's very close to my heart, as I'm sure yours. And we've recorded quite a few podcasts to this point, but you'll be pleased to know that actually you're the first person that we've had from the UK. Wow. And, yeah. And uh, everyone else has been US-based. Um, but I think it's really English of us, isn't it? That And I, I've done it, and I think, on every podcast, not meaning to. And I've mentioned the weather whenever I was going to say, always the weather. I, I have a global role. I travel around the world every week talking to people in 20 different countries, and every single conversation is still always about the weather. Always start with the weather. Well, look, at this time of year, I mean, again, we're going to talk about it for a second. I'm looking out the window. It's sunny June and it's really particularly sunny. Uh, I'm in London. I know you are you live in London, but you're in Manchester at the moment. But this is the time of year that brings us happiness, I'd say. It certainly does me anyway. Well, I was, there was something on social media every weekend about how everybody in the UK goes mad when the sun starts shining. You yeah. like live in darkness and greyness for six months and then the minute... The minute the sun comes out, we go zero to 60 in one day. And now it's all like amber warnings and heat waves alerts. Everyone's out without their shirts on and things. Yeah. You know, there's, there's no there's no happy medium. And yeah. uh, I think this this weekend, because they're forecasting such great weather, everyone's like, it's amazing. We're alive again. The sun's come out. So, yeah, yeah. Very, very British, very British. And as Mancunians, as we both are, and I'm keen to ask you about that in a second, David's a Londoner. He's proud to be a Londoner. But Londoners always, and I'm just going to say this before he jumps in, 
pride themselves on the fact that the weather is better down south, but I'm not sure that's necessarily the case anymore, Dave. I, I think just given that that slight, uh, what is it, two, three hundred miles that we've got on uh, on Manchester, it, it makes it that tiny bit better. But as Gillian was saying before we actually started the podcast, I think your day becomes, I guess, metaphorically more sunny when people are, from what I hear, much more friendly up north. Yeah, there you go. Gillian, you're in Manchester today, right? I am, although I take issue with you calling me a Mancunian because I'm a Boltonian. I was uh, born and brought up in Bolton, which will mean nothing to your international audience, but it's a good 20 miles away from Manchester and uh, it's it's as rival as New York and Boston. We are, yeah. Bolton's not as big as Bolton's, <laughs> Bolton's tiny, but uh, no, I'm a, I'm a Boltonian. And uh, the, on the weather being different, I mean, I live, I've lived in London for 25 years, and uh, I'm actually staying with my parents this weekend. Um, and um, when I left the house this morning, my dad gave me a lift to the station and, and it was quite nippy. It was seven o'clock in the morning. And so I had a kind of thin coat on. My dad's like, you don't need a coat. Like, I do. I feel the cold now, Dad. I've got to wear my coat because it's cold <laughs> in the morning. So yeah, that, that, I think it's, I think it is colder up here. It's just that people don't feel it. It's lovely to hear that, you, you know, you, you go back up north and your dad takes you to the station. And... <laughs> You are at my age, yeah. Well, it's not about I wasn't going to mention age, I was certainly going to mention, I suppose, level of trajectory and success in your career and what you do and what you've done and you've achieved in life, both at work and outside. But always lovely that your dad is going to tell you that it's not cold and you need to just, you know, suck it up and get on with it. Yep, (laughs) (laughs) absolutely. So, proud Boltonian, and as you say, you've been in London for 25 years. There's loads of things that we want to talk about with you, Gillian, because you've had, you know, such a great career, but also uh, life and the things that you do both inside and outside of work, I think are truly, truly impressive, as I said, I'm a, I'm a bit at the beginning. And, you know, clearly you are, or it seems on the surface anyway, that you're someone that looks for your version of success, both in work and outside of work and what you can give back to society as well as what you as well as what you uh, I suppose contribute within the workplace and with your clients etc with something we talk about with everyone this search and succeed phrase when you hear the phrase search and succeed how does it resonate with you what do you what do you think about I I find it it's a really interesting phrase because I will quite often say to people I've never known what I be what I want to be when I grow up. I still don't know what I want to be when I grow up. Um, I have never been one of those people who was like, this is my job, this is my career, this is where I want to go, this is what I want to be, this is what I'm aiming for. I've never been able to define it. And um, I'm very envious of people who can. I've never had that even now. And so, but what I have done is try to always be open for interesting opportunities and follow them. So exploring conversations, exploring things. And, and I, I've taken some weird turns in my career at times as well, but they've led me to really interesting places. And uh, like, you sort of very kindly said something in your intro and a couple of friends said to me as well, you look at my CV for the job that I do. I have like this amazing, perfect CV, but it was never designed to be that. It just happened that way because I followed interesting stuff that happened to give me more progression. So I, I really like the phrase search and succeed because that idea of searching for things that lead to success rather than I am very blinkered as to where I'm going and this is what I'm doing 
uh, that that really resonates with me. So I'm I'm intrigued as to what some of these you know, crazy uh, things that you've done in your, <laughs> you know in, in your life, you know, because we we take a corporate path, don't we, very often, or an entrepreneurial path or whatever. But I think probably when we look back or think back, there are always stories and and moments that that probably stand out that led you on the journey that you're on. Is there any specifically that come to mind? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm not sure I'd go as far as crazy. I've got quite a a, a boring sort of digital centric world but um i i've always been i'm i've always been more on the digital business consulting side of things that's my job that's my remit that's what i do and all the way through my career people have always been oh, well that's the path that you take but sometimes i've taken jobs you know i took a role once that was very heavy technical running right. uh, an app support division and everybody kind of looked at me and went why on earth are you doing that and I did it because of the people I got the chance to work with and what I could learn from them. And actually, even now today, some of the things I learned about running shift patterns and dealing with people and so on all come from actually what was a very heavy technical job. But mm. people would look at my CV and go, that bit kind of doesn't fit. Uh, I also, you know, I left quite a big organization to go to what was a startup in the UK, which, again, was a bit of a kind of random move, just, again, because I was interested by the people who were working there and the challenge. And so many of the skills that I picked up there as well helped me be better at what I do now, even though I'm now back in the kind of big corporate role as well. Yeah. And then also, I think some of the, you know, my, my second job, as I talk about with my work that I do with London Sport, which came from a, a previous non-exec role that I did with a company that was called EduServe, which again was about education, IT charities. <clears throat> it's It's very parallel to what I do in my main job, but it still gives me a lot of, reinforcement of some of my skills it helps me build on my responsibility what I and it, it brings into everything that I do so whilst you would never have looked at this traditional career path and said oh well if I'm going to be an IT consultant these are the things that come into it they're actually the bits that interest me most and that I think I've learned from the most it's that continual journey and I'm plagiarizing yep. a little bit on a couple of people that we've asked previously about the phrase search and succeed who talked about how searching for success is that continual journey and I suppose I suppose that's exactly what it is you know it's I mean we I we talk about continual change at work but it, it is we are in a world of continual change and mm. I think the IT sector in particular you know when I started in it those 25 years ago you would do a, your job would be three to five years but now the industry changes literally every six months you know, we are hiring for jobs now in Gen AI that didn't exist six months ago. We're hiring for jobs in Metaverse that didn't exist 12 months ago. Yeah. You know, the, the rate of change is insane. And so I think really critical is being able to constantly look and, and evolve and continually change because you can't survive in this kind of industry unless you do that. Do you think that level of change is sustainable? It feels like we're at a point that is as big as the internet or as big as, you know, it's it's such a significant point. But it seems like it's so fast moving. Do you think it's possible to continue at that pace? Well, I'm I'm part of the intermediate generation. So the, the generations that came before me in the workplace were the people who were used to five-year, 10-year, 20-year careers and mm. so found this very hard. Um, the generation that comes after me, the people who are coming into the workforce now, this is all they've ever known. So they're, they're conditioned to cope with and accept this kind of continual change. But we're going to have this window probably of about 20 years with people like me who've had to take this on as a learned habit. 
and for people like us it's exhausting it's really hard because human beings get unsettled by change however much they embrace it or hate it it affects everybody and so I think there is going to be this period we're a few years into it we've got probably 10-15 years to go where people like me are are really adapting real time and having to learn some new muscle to be able to deal with it but eventually yeah it'll be sustainable because the people who will come in behind me the amazing people that I mentor now and and some of the juniors we hire, this will be a breeze for them. They'll just be used to a world that is constantly evolving. Right, that's really interesting. I mean, change has obviously been there for for some time, right? I mean, forever. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, We're ever evolving, ever changing. But I think this level of... Yeah, is the one that you you say their learned habit, I think is a great phrase. It's kind of, it's like we're manufacturing our ability to deal with this change and level of pace of change rather than, as you say, just being for the, the next generation relatively normal. I mean, I, I, I am in this in-between generation in that when I was at school, when I was at university, the internet was really not a thing. It was just coming up. I didn't have a mobile phone until I started work, you know, and in that period of time, I'm giving so many clues to my age now. But in that period of time, I've gone from, you know, we didn't even have, we faxed timesheets and we didn't have mobile phones to, I can, I can literally, I was sitting in the McDonald's in Watford Gap Services yesterday with my laptop hooked up to Wi-Fi and my Oculus headset hooked up to my phone while somebody was training me how to use workrooms in in the metaverse. And literally people were filming me because I looked like, complete weirdo in the corner of mcdonald's wow and that's that's where that's where it's gone in such a short period of time now people who are coming in today they'll because it's happening every six months they'll just be used to it that'll be normal yeah for for people of of my kind of generation we've had to go through all of that and it's it is absolutely exhausting so we ultimately think that I think, well, a lot of change is driven by technology, right? Um, There's been a lot of technology change and technology advancement over the last 50, 60 years. But do we therefore think that generations, younger generations and generations to come are going to adapt to change a lot better and a lot quicker because of the advancement in technology that is happening throughout their life cycle? Yeah, because if something happens so often, it stops being changed, it becomes the norm, right? So the next evolution of the technology will just become normal. You'll be expecting it. That's that's what you'll want. It'll it'll just happen. And then you know, the the that sense of adaptability will just be routine for them. And so they'll be able to embrace that. I don't know. I mean, I think it will always be it will be exhausting, but it, it is it is the pace that has sped up so much over the last few years. And once people get used to that pace, and it, it literally is all the time, it, it will just become normal. Yeah. And I hope I hopefully will be retired by then, but it will become normal. It's, it's funny because we're we're, we're a, I, I can't I can't keep count of how many uh, how many podcasts we've done to date. It's not that many, but it's not just a, a handful. And it seems that whenever we talk about success, which is sort of the key element of what this podcast is about, a few phrases come up time and time again. One is is the journey, which we discussed before, but you just mentioned the word adaptability. And that seems to be common amongst all our conversations when it comes to success and how to achieve it and what that 
journey looks like the the adaptability the ability for individuals to flex and change in order to achieve what they're looking to achieve and achieve what they believe is success is just a, <clears throat> another another focal point yeah and I think it, it all raises an interesting question there which was something I started thinking about when Rob and I were first discussing doing this podcast which is the distinction between success and satisfaction mm -hmm. so it is possible and it's how you define success I personally have a bit of a thing about success which is more of an outside in so success is kind of what you achieve that other people recognize as something that's an achievement and I know not everybody agrees with that definition and some people work in different ways whereas the internal piece is the satisfaction like do I feel fulfilled do I feel happy do I feel like I've achieved something and I think all of this rate of change and everything is is causing the a kind of a different thing happening in those two spaces as to what do we see as success in a population in society versus what actually makes people satisfied which is where you get into a lot of this sort of gen z millenniums you've got very different different takes on what they want from life and what they want from work mm -hmm. and um I, I find it i find it fascinating because Rob, you'll open with an intro that says I'm very successful and I've done this and I've done that. But inside, I question whether I'm satisfied with with what I've done, whether that's the stuff that really means something to me or whether there are other things that I need to, to do to drive a different kind of satisfaction. And um, without getting too much into my existential angst, I think that's a it's, a it's a really interesting concept about what is it that makes people feel satisfied and content and happy versus an outward perception of what is success. I'll just, I think you've articulated it perfectly there. I mean, the, the phrase success is so synonymous with career that actually underneath the subject title of success, satisfaction is got to be right up there, right? Are you satisfied? Are you happy with what it is that you're doing? There'll be plenty of examples and, and narratives and, and, and situations where, you know, you'll read about someone or, you know, you even see it in a movie or you read it in a book about, you know, a very super successful guy and he does this and he looks after such and such a size of organisation, but fundamentally wasn't happy in himself or herself. And people go, how can he not be happy? He's got all this money and look how well he's done. But that's, that is, everything you just said there is the real essence, as David was saying as well, of this podcast of searching for your own version of success hmm. it doesn't have to be just because you are in the c-suite of an organization that doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to be for you know your version of success that might take away from your time with your family it could mean that it puts undue pressure on you it could be you know, bad for your health or whatever the case might be hmm. uh, what one person <clears throat> is striving for is so different to someone else's yeah and i i think Again, back to that generational thing, it's really interesting times at the moment because there are some very clear separations of satisfaction and success, I think, in some of the different generations, as well as then the individual variants because everybody's different and everyone's got different things that matter to them. Mm. And uh, it, something that I find fascinating at work um, is trying to change things so that we can we can work with people to accommodate all these dimensions so you know I'm, I'm in a position where i i joined up three years ago 
and the task was to build our advisory business. And I love the task because it's an opportunity to, to build something new post-COVID when we have to change the way that we work, um, new people coming together from different places, but that we can do something different and we can embrace the way that people work, what people want, what career means for them and so on. I also have a dual, you know, I'm our um, exec sponsor for wellbeing and the mental health piece that we do at Abenard as well, because I think those things are so interlinked. And it's to your point, right? If people people can pursue what they feel is success, like a promotion or more money or whatever, but it can be incredibly detrimental to their own personal happiness and their own personal satisfaction. So how do you balance these two things out? Because personally, I think maybe satisfaction is almost more important than this perception of success. And when we speak to people, as as you know, we do every day, talk to people about their careers, it's very rare that you would speak to someone who would turn around and say, well, look, I don't particularly want to step into the next level because it's not going to suit my work-life balance. It's not going to, or it's going to be too impactful on my mental health and my physical health, potentially. Very rare that you do get that. But I, I think, you know, when you say what you say there, if I think about certain people who I see get to a certain level and actually don't then aspire to necessarily get to the next level, which they could do, right? Super bright people. Mm. But perhaps they're just content, they're happy with what it is that they do. And actually pushing to be viewed successfully, quote unquote, from a career perspective, isn't necessarily what provides that satisfaction Mm. for them uh, within themselves. I'm really pleased you touched on the mental health element, but also the fact that you work in a, a technology-based business and, and you're advising clients when it comes to technology and how people meet it. So, you know, the, the, the human meets digital element of, I suppose, the world that we're very much in right now, whether you mm-hmm. believe that, you know, we're going to have robots carrying our shopping for us or whether you just think, you know, that that's a bit far-fetched I'm not really sure but there's no doubt that we live longer that healthcare is improving and that digital interference is growing by the day so how do in your opinion how do societies and people positively you know embrace an ever-progressing digital landscape it's interesting you mean things like the doomsday headlines we get here in the UK like AI will destroy humanity which I think they had in the Guardian a few weeks ago which uh, was quite amusing um, I, I mean, we forget that we've been through this before. This is not the first time that a form of technology has changed our lives. I'm here in Manchester, home of the Industrial Revolution, Brilliant. where you know the, the world massively changed. The difference is the pace, because over that it was hundreds of years, whereas now we're talking about mm. small numbers of years. But human beings adapt and evolve and make the most of things. And we will we will continue to adapt and evolve and make the most of it. And, you know, I, I think we are heading towards a world where uh, technology will continue to augment what we can do and make us capable of more things. I think it will have, back to my interest in the mental health side of it and human digital, I think it's going to have fascinating impacts on psychology and how people, you know, what people do and what people own and how people behave and what they choose because if they can do more because they're augmented by digital what is that going to mean but I don't I don't think we will all be taken over by things like gen AI I think we will 
we will just continue to evolve and, and be able to do more and do things better. And like I said, in, in 20 years time, when people are used to that, because they've always had it, it will just be normal. Same as, you know, 100 years post the Industrial Revolution, working in factories instead of fields and using machineries instead of humans and animals was normal as well. Yeah. I want to come very inspired inspired by my surroundings yeah absolutely and you you won't get any pushback from me (laughs) um I want to ask you about the work that you're doing internally on mental health side but just just on the basis of and I agree with you you know humans will continue to thrive and continue to exist and uh, I think people that are genuinely concerned need to maybe we just think about how the type of jobs will change and what um, you know, people in education, but then people coming into uh, looking at their careers. What, what what kind of pathway do you think people should look for that would be, you know, that you would perhaps suggest if you were just chatting to someone yeah. coming through in their career? So, I mean, looking at looking at the IT and digital space, I am now looking at bringing people on board and nurturing talent more from an attributes point of view rather than the skills. So I'm going to give you an example. I, I, did a, I did a couple of degrees in computing. I learned programming techniques and stuff obsolete from the minute I stepped out of university into the workplace. Yeah. Being trained in these skills is irrelevant now. But people who are fantastic problem solvers, who are curious, who can learn quickly, who can adapt, who can be open-minded, who can be logical, I'll take them any day. And bringing those skills in to learn and continually evolve is going to be the key to being successful in the IT and digital industry going forwards. Mm. Because we can teach, if people have got those skills, we can teach them anything we need to teach them. And then the next thing is six months' time and the next thing is six months' time onwards. But if they don't have those kind of core skills, then this is going to be a very challenging industry for them. And, uh, you know, even if I go back again to when I started, if you wanted to be a programmer, you could be a programmer in that language for 10, 15, 20 years and be employed and do your thing. And that was great, but that is not the world today. And so it's people who've got those kind of broader skills who can evolve, evolve and, and be curious and ask questions that are going to be much more key. So I, I would say to people, you know, if think about think about those more holistic skills and think about how you make the most of them um, and how you you bring those to everything that you do. And that will actually naturally breed success because you'll naturally be following the evolution and the opportunities that are arising. Are they soft skills that you were suggesting there, Gillian, more so than necessarily hard learned skills? Yeah, I mean, I think I think some of them are soft. I'm, I'm not sure I would say that soft skills can't be learned. Mm. I think they are, they're not kind of technician skills because i think people will need those as well but they can mm-hmm. be taught fairly easily but they are they are soft skills that people can can practice and build on in terms of the, some of the techniques they can use and how they approach things um i do think you can train your mind to think in that way if if you have a kernel of that to start with this industry is not for everybody it never has been but if you if you have a, a kernel of that to start with you can you can train it and you can enhance that and you can go along that path of that kind of curiosity and and thirst for learning and so on just a quick pause to the podcast to share with you a charity very close to our hearts prevent breast cancer who are just incredibly passionate about stopping the disease before it starts. 
prevent breast cancer, promote healthier lifestyles, screening and early diagnosis. They make sure 100% of their research funding is focused on preventing breast cancer for future generations. They're the only UK charity entirely dedicated to the prediction and prevention of breast cancer. They're right at the front line in the fight against the disease. And we are right behind them. I think all those skills culminate, or a lot of those skills culminate in the the critical thinking aspect. Mm. And critical thinking is effectively one of the only things that AI and generative AI can't do. That's that's the the reason that AI, in my opinion, and in, in many people's opinions, won't take over. It will enhance and it will help, but it won't take over. Um, so I think all those those whether they're softer skills or whether they're just non-traditional technical skills, that's mm. what's going to allow us to to utilize the technology rather than let the technology absorb us effectively. Yeah, I think we're a very long way from AI being able to to have those kind of softer skills and, and work in that way. Um, I agree with you. And I, I think that's the evolution, right? It's people evolving to bring those skills that surround the technology rather than being about the technology itself. And you you mentioned before that, you know, we see these sort of doomsday type headlines in the, in the news when it comes to, to AI, uh, generative AI specifically. Um, and it's not it's not just the news, right? I was I was sitting down having dinner in a restaurant with my family the other day, and we were talking about AI. And it's interesting hearing everyone's opinions. People who don't work in this space at all. I've got um, a family member who who works for a big tech firm, so he's got a little bit of insight. And everyone's everyone's sort of opinions come together in in very different ways. People have got real different views on it. But you probably have a lot of conversations with your clients about these types of technologies clients across different sectors different verticals different industries um one of the things that was brought up in my family's dinner conversation was could ai be used really detrimentally from a and we're not going to go into this um but from a a weapons and a war type perspective but i know you touch on 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 government and the public sector in your work so maybe not going into the whole doom and gloom of of what i just mentioned but what's important to public sector organizations when it comes to ai today yeah well actually just touch on what you, you did say i'd be very surprised if it isn't being already you know, there are all kinds of technologies that are used in that space. But let's be honest, there are different politics at place that keep things in check. It's not about the technologies or the inventions. It's about the, the, if it was an AI, it'd be something else. So, you know, that doesn't worry me. I think we should accept that just like everything else, it probably is. Yeah. Um, but in, in terms of the role of government, and I guess we're getting into the ethics of it all now as well, <laughs> and what's what's legit to be done by AI and not, I'm, you know, I'm sure a lot of people have seen like the black mirror things where we can replicate people with AI and is that ethical and so on. It's a, it's an interesting question. Um, funnily enough, I, there is a, a person that I've been mentoring for quite a long time. He's based in Germany. Um, he's still quite early in his career. Uh, work with him, I had to work with him there at Avenard. And uh, he and I were debating this the other day. Very interesting to get, perspective from somebody who was of that generation who is more adaptive to this 
And we were we were chewing through the debate of the need to innovate and push boundaries, which is what the big tech companies are doing, like Microsoft, Google, so on at the moment, versus the need to regulate and control and protect and guide the ethics, which is obviously what mm -hmm. we're looking to government and regulation for. And uh, we started drawing some compare and contrast with things like the big pharma companies. And the fact that if you you have to regulate because you have to maintain that ethical perspective, but you can't regulate too much because you will stop good evolution and progress. So yeah. how do you find the right balance? And I, I you know, I threw in a very flippant example when I was talking to him about the the development of the smallpox vaccine and the fact that the the guy who created it found out that it worked by injecting his own daughter with it just to see if it would work. Right now. You have an instance there where you can look at it from one side and say that should be completely legislated against because it's totally unethical to inject small children with untested drugs that might kill them. But then you could also say that if that hadn't happened, we would never have had the vaccine for smallpox and we would never have eradicated it from the face of the earth. Mm -hmm. So there's this interesting parallel now, which is this is a whole new thing that everyone's experimenting with and we have to develop and we have to grow. Yes, we need to protect society and we need to be we need to be ethical about it, but we also can't stifle that too much. So I, uh, I think the question is, how do we do that? My fear is that the thing that is different now is that when that happened with Edward Jenner at Smallpox, it was very isolated, right? It was in one small rural village that it happened. This is global already. This is everybody's data that is already sucked into this experiment that is looking at gen ai mm -hmm. so the scale of it is very different so so how do you how do you deal with that side of things and i guess one of the fears that i have is that when you look at these huge companies that are multinational it's very difficult for one government in one place to actually legislate against them and uh, you know you get into what's been happening five years ago with facebook and not wanting to share their data with russia back then um, and everyone went oh this is horrible we're never doing it again Five years later, in exactly the same point with TikTok in front of the High Court in the US saying we're not going to date with China, do it with China, because people get so much benefit out of these things, they'll just share their data anyway. So I think it's going to be super hard for governments to actually legislate and shut these things down because one, the companies that are driving them are so big they cross boundaries, and two, people are actually getting some benefit out of it. And so they're going, well, I'm all right, I'll just carry on doing this. Um, so it's going to be a very interesting situation and we might have to all adjust our expectations as to what is acceptable and what is ethical, controversial opinion. Um, yeah. But we yeah. might have to, to as this evolves, because there's, there's a lot of lot of places this, this could go and it might not be containable, which is why you get the doomsday headlines, right? Because that's people taking that argument to the nth degree. Yeah. And I don't believe, I don't, I think human society will equalize out in all of that before we get to a doomsday scenario. But um, I think that's where we are at the moment. We're in this tension between, well, people are scared about the ethics, but we need to advance this because it could do some really great things. Great example. It's one time, <laughs> for sure. Because <laughs> well, I've just taken you through small pops, yeah. TikTok. Yeah, yeah. I, that was that was a wide ranging one. <laughs> but you, you, you're absolutely right. But what 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 is one person's ethical ceiling is a, is very different to the next person. And look, we don't necessarily need to get into anything geopolitical here. But it's definitely something that if you're in the UK, it'll differ to the US, and then it'll very much differ to some of the the far reaching. Countries. And I. I 
I think the challenges that governments have as well is that governance don't necessarily match what the people in the country want either. So just look at back to US and TikTok, right? In front of the High Court, um, Supreme Court, and it was all about, in fact, it was Congress. In front of Congress, all the thing about, right, we want to ban TikTok because you're harvesting data illegally and it might end up in China. TikTok are sitting there going, we're perfectly confident that our 200 million users in the US actually want to use this app and therefore won't let you do this because they want it and they need it. So your people are saying something different than you in the government and we're just going to crack on. Yeah, so it's a little bit like a parent-child thing to some degree. You know, it's all very well and good that my children say that they want it, but kind of we know better and we need to yeah. But if your children carry on, at what point, you know, it's it's yeah. kind of the it's kind of the rebellion, it's kind of the overthrowing. So uh, it's it's getting increasingly hard for governments to con- control. And actually it can't be about control. Back to that point of continual change. You can't control something that's continually changing. You can only guide and nudge in the right directions. And I think we need to look to governments to do that guiding and nudging in that balance rather than trying to come down hard and control some of this stuff. I caveat all this with I'm not a political expert. (laughs) (laughs) I don't want to I don't want to start major major wars and government overthrows with this. But, you know, that it's an interesting space as to how that turns out over the next few years, I think. And you know what? In all these conversations, I hear the word interesting so often because (laughs) I think interesting goes just both ways, doesn't it? We use it when we think it could be a good thing and we use it when we think it could be a bad thing. And it is fundamentally interesting to see which way it's going to go. Yep, absolutely. Um, yeah, and that sustainability element is 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 critical as as we move forward. And there's no doubt that we're in a moment that I think are putting a lot of people in flux, right? In uh, but in a good way and in a bad way. And you talked before about um, the mental health side of the work that you're doing at Avenard, which is you know which is is wonderful because we know it's such a a critical important conversation and. You know, when when we talk about the people on the human centric side, you know, I didn't know about mental health awareness in May, right? Okay. I just didn't know about it until you actually mentioned it to me, and then had a look at it. And obviously, it's it's not something that needs to be bracketed into one week of the year, but like anything, it's good to have a focus. And the work that you undertake at London Sport as well are, are the two connected in any way? Yeah, very much. So. I mean, first of all, I should say I'm I'm just the exact sponsor of it at Avenard. So we have a, an amazing woman called Emily Warren who heads all of that up for us and makes a lot of it happen day to day. Um, and I'm I'm there to help amplify the voice and and drive it forwards. But it's it's something that I do feel very passionately about. I've done a lot of work about emotion in the workplace, and you know, you talk about some of these topics. I think digital. I, I'm fascinated by the whole psychology and emotional and anthropological aspects of where digital are taking us and, and, and mental health and stress and well-being are all wrapped into that for me. Um, I It's also something I've been very conscious of for myself throughout my career because yeah. I've been through episodes of very high stress yeah. where I've had to deal with difficult situations. Mm. Um, and I've been, I've been very conscious of how to keep myself going through that. And the work from London Sport comes from, uh, you know, I, I, I really believe that physical activity is something that really helps address some of that mental well-being and, and um, achieving anti-stress type things. So for many years now, I've tried to embrace activity to help with that. I am by no means a great sports person or an elite athlete or anything, 
but I do find that it helps me and so and it, it wasn't something I had as a child either it didn't come naturally to me I was not uh, I was not the first I was not the winner in the field when we were doing athletics at school in any way shape or form but the work from London Sport it is really linked to that because although it's called London Sport it's actually about getting people in the capital active for the mm-hmm. purposes of mental well-being and social good because not just me personally but there's so much scientific evidence that physical activity helps with mental well-being and um, just getting moving for half an hour a day whatever that is makes a difference and also the difference it makes to society in terms of building connections reducing crime all that kind of stuff it, it's just a, a core thing so when I was given the opportunity four years ago to go and work with them I let the chance because it's something that I believe but it, it it can do so much and it can really help with that mental well-being side of things yeah you just run the marathon Gillian I did I did just run the marathon it was a month ago now but yeah I did just run the marathon for London Sport so lots of people were very kind to sponsor me to do that for them for yeah. the second time I did it six months ago as well <laughs> oh, did you oh wow yeah oh wow <laughs> what in London Yep, I did London Marathon the last two times. So it was October and then um, April. And so there's two things that really impressed me about the marathon. I'm a sporty, right? I've played football and all different sports forever. But I find people who run the marathon, I I couldn't do it. It's not good for my knees. I just don't don't really want to do it, if I'm being really honest. I'd like to raise Mm -hmm. money in, in different ways. And I take my hat off to anyone that does it. Not only for getting through the 26.2 miles that you run, which is just a bonkers number, <laughs> but also the the time that you spend up and down the pavements. And was it a lot harder training for the one just gone than the one in October because you're out in the middle of January and February training? Um, yes and no. Um, I... It was easier because it was just continuing the fitness. So I didn't have to do quite as much okay. in terms of amping, amping it up. But yeah, I, I don't like pounding the pavements. And also, by the way, as a woman in London, it's very hard to run on the pavements after dark right. because you're restricted as to where you can go and, and different places. Even now, you know, it's still there's still that sense of am I safe? So I was very limited on time when I could go out and run and when I could do things. Yeah. Um I'm I'm fortunate. Like I said, I'm not an athlete, but I am physically quite well aligned to endurance. So um, I, the, the training side of it wasn't quite so hard for me. Um, and uh, I am a very weird person in that I love the mental challenge of focusing. And uh, I don't know if I don't know if you know, but actually the week after the London Marathon, a friend and I did a 106k ultra high current the Isle of Wight in a, in a different um, different competition and the mental focus over what took us 31 hours over two days was far more of a challenge than focusing for five hours to run a marathon. In what way? Like, How would you describe that mental focus? Four, well, I, four and a half, five hours is nothing, especially when you're hugely stimulated by the crowds and what's going on and being in London and you know, it's it's not hard to yeah. not listen to your body for four or five hours, whereas doing fifteen hour, two fifteen hour stints where you're literally just walking through fields, you run out of conversation quite quickly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's and and your feet are hurting and you've got blisters and yeah. you know bits of you are falling to pieces. And, all it, and that is and then especially on day one where you know you've got to get up again the second day and do it all over again. 
that is mentally much harder. And um, like I said, I am one of those weird people. I, I like that and I like the challenge. I like that hard mental challenge. Yes. Yeah. And so I, I, I actually found that for me, back to success and achievement, for me personally, that was more of an achievement and felt more like a success than, than finishing the marathon because I found that a lot harder. I'm not a mental health expert in any shape or form, <laughs> but I obviously am a person and deal with my own situation. But it is, it's interesting, interesting, there's that word again, to think about how we all manage our own mental capacities at, at any moment doing anything in any, in any, like I say, in any moment. You know, you talk about the time, you know, that you spend running the marathon, but very different to to walking for 31 hours. I can think of, I used to run quite a lot, but I find it super boring. So mm. In order for me to kind of get through that time of running for an hour or whatever, I'd think about some goals that I scored for my football team. And it just kind of got me through the moments to to achieve what I wanted to achieve. And I'm talking really loosely there because mental health is so important and high on everyone's agenda. And when it's in the workplace, you talked before, I just wrote it down before because it was really interesting. You talked about emotion in the workplace and, you know, we spend so much time at work. I know it's not always now sitting at the desk opposite each other because we work remotely at times. But how how do organisations, I suppose, how do HR functions, how do you as a leader take responsibility and judge somebody who might be going through something quite difficult even even though they've responded perhaps in the wrong way in the wrong in a moment. <clears throat> wow, you use the word judge there, and I would say that the, the tricker to it is that it's absolutely not. It's not judging. It's the other way around. We ran an event at Avenard as part of Mental Health um, May, where we had a, a, a guest speaker who was talking about some of his experiences. And at the end of it, um, myself and our global I and D lead were debating what we need to do as leaders to help encourage people in this space and in work. And the conversation we were having was about every single person is different. So the first thing is to be back to that being open, completely open-minded, right? Every single person has a different narrative going on in their head at any point in time, even if they're in exactly the same situation, they have a different narrative going on. So if you are a, a leader in, and you've got this going on at work, then I think our job is to, be open-minded and listen mm-hmm. um, and just just listen to where that goes before we make any judgment at all about what's going on or how we can help or what we need to do. And then the flip side of that, which we also discussed, is that if you really want people to tell you, then you have to create a trusted environment and a safe space. And that means us as leaders sharing more as well, because People won't share unless they feel that there's some kind of empathy or understanding or connection. And to do that, you've got to be open yourselves. So we have to be more more open and more emotional and, and more kind of transparent about what we're feeling. Because again, I'll tell you now, there won't be a single person in my industry who does not have some level of stress or angst going on about something at the moment. If they are, then fantastic. But most people will have something going on. And, um, you know, if the more that we're open about that, the more we will make it easier for other people to have that conversation back with us. And we can actually get all of this stuff out in the open and, and work it through. And, you know, dramas, I, 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 so I am not a mental health expert and nor do I want to undermine anything, but challenges, dramas, issues, they don't loom quite so large usually when once they're out in the open and they're not just inside mm. your head. Yeah. 
So if you can if you can share them in a safe space and be respected and be well treated for that, um, then that's I think that's a really positive thing that we can do. So empathy and understanding everyone has their own thing going on and being being open ourselves, I think is absolutely key. I think we still as humans need to be resilient and not just kind of fall down at the first sign of something that might be hard. The generational side of things, you know. Our, our generation when we grew up and the generations before us at the first sign of oh my gosh something is really difficult and it's really bothering me was a case of well come on suck it up and get on with it and now we're very much in a in a generation where that that thankfully isn't the case right because we need to think about that person but that I think that resilience and being able to get the balance right is is critical for people generally but I love the fact that you talk about the platform to be able to talk you know do, do you feel that organizations are giving their people enough of that platform i know it's quite a generic general question because there's billions of organizations if, if i if i just talk about my industry i think more and more they are i yeah. think it is much more recognized in the it and digital industry whether we've cracked it yet or not i, I don't know i mean there's so many things so many things to do to try and make that happen but I would say since COVID it is definitely something that is talked about so much more it's like COVID and lockdown opened a door for people when they ask you how you are to genuinely mean it and listen to the answer rather than the way that we did it before and I, and I think that's the beginning of a bit of a transformation that can happen that will take some time yeah. um, but it, it's back to everything we've been you know it's tied back into everything that we've been talking about I, I think if you are going to have satisfaction in what you do, then you need to be able to address that kind of um, well-being and mental health side of it. I think there is continual change, which you've got to keep adapting to, to continue to be successful. And again, having that kind of well-being and mental health that helps you deal with that continual change is going to be super important. Um, and yeah, you know, that whole resilience thing, it all ties back. Search to succeed, you said, you know, being resilient, being able to compete, being able to find your own satisfaction within that, and what that means for you mentally and emotionally, I think is a, is a fundamental part of it. Well, we can't change the phrase now, but I really like search and satisfaction. Um, it's like <laughs> an offshoot somewhere. Yeah, we, we've covered so many things here, Gillian. It's been it's been super chatting with you, and just to get to know you, and, and uh, you know, not just about what you do on LinkedIn and in your career, but actually what what you strive for for your satisfaction and for your personal successes. You know, you are right up there with one of my favourite Boltonians, Peter Kay. So <laughs> Dodgy comparison. Well, uh, he's, he's, he's one of my favourites. And, and thank you so much indeed for your time. It's been wonderful chatting with you. Uh, thank you so much for your insight and your thoughts and your thinking. Learned so much. I've got some analogies now to share and say this isn't mine but this is, uh, this is <laughs> and we look forward to sponsoring you on your next marathon uh, um, I'll hold you to that <laughs> yeah and hopefully chatting with you again oh you're welcome thank you thank you for having me I think it's, it's a it's a fascinating topic and I certainly feel that I'm still on the journey with it as well you know I, I am still searching for my success even everything that I've done and I think everybody is so it's great to be able to talk about it and, and explore so many different variables that go around it so thank you for the opportunity thank you for having me thank you for listening to the search and succeed podcast 
Please subscribe and follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. We'll see you on the next one. Thank you.